This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. It's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 133. My guest is Simon Moores, the founder and MD of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. This episode was recorded in New York City on April 1st. It was done on an iPhone, so there are some ramifications of that sound quality wise, but it seemed to me better to take the opportunity to sit down with Simon and talk than to uh, forego it because I did not have the proper recording equipment. In this episode, Simon and I cover a lot of the topics that you would expect related to battery metals, the lithium-ion battery supply chain, the issues of the day. But this is also about a young man with a vision that I always appreciated going back to when he first explained to me what he was doing with Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. Simon is 25 years younger than I am, so we're we're from different generations, but I've always felt that I understood how he thinks, and I always have respected and appreciated his vision for what he wanted to accomplish, and I take great delight in the success of Benchmark. I know several other people on the Benchmark team, but as they've grown as rapidly as they have, I haven't met a lot of the team members, and I look forward to doing that as we get back into having in-person events. If you listen to the Live in London episode from last September, there was a special guest on that episode named Shay. This time, Shay's younger brother, who lives in New York, joined us for the rapid fire section. I think you'll find that entertaining, and I was pleased to know that he is likely the next Mr. Lithium, if there is such a thing. At least that's what he indicated in one of his rapid fire answers. I close this episode by asking for a favor, and the favor has nothing to do with you supporting the podcast in any way. And finally, a shout out to uh, Tommy from Finland. Tommy wrote me and told me he was going to be visiting New York City with his family for 10 days. And if there was any chance that I happened to get to New York during that time frame, could we meet? As it turned out, I did get to New York during that time frame. And we did meet. And we had a great conversation. It's always good to talk to loyal podcast listeners, get their perspective. Now that we're getting back into more normal travel patterns, I hope to meet more podcast listeners as I travel the world. I always learn something about how people think about this industry, which very much interests me. Without further ado, Simon Moores. Simon Moores, welcome 
to the Global Lithium Podcast. Thank you very much, Joe. It's good to be back. You don't really need an introduction to 90% of the Global Lithium Podcast audience, but for those new listeners, why don't you reprise your land of birth, your education, and how you came to be the man as a purveyor of battery-related information services, if that is a adequate reflection of what you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Um, well, how did I get into the lithium-ion battery supply chain, raw materials to, to sales? I started, I, it starts with me not being very good at geology at university. That was my background. So, you know, I went to the University of Birmingham in England. That's where I'm from. And uh, did geology as a, a subject, realized it didn't do anything before university on geology, didn't really do my research before the course started, realized very quickly I'm not very good at this. Uh, or I was good enough to get through, but I didn't want to do it as a subject. So my first job, uh, I, I joined a magazine called Industrial Minerals. It's 2006. And it was, a, it was part of a company called Metal Bulletin, which is now Fast Markets. And it, it, they kind of, Industrial Minerals covered all these raw materials that no one ever cared about. The first thing I was given was lithium. The second thing I was given was graphite. So instantly, in 2006, 2007, all of a sudden, the, the, the iPhone was coming out, the Nissan Leaf was, uh, was in the pipeline, and it became a, a, a subject I've covered for the rest of you know, my career to date. Launched Benchmark in 2014 because the industry needed, first, the really key price data on the key raw materials, and um, especially lithium, but then other data of the whole supply chain. So we, we launched Benchmark with an idea of going from lithium, graphite, cobalt, nickel, to the cathodes and anodes, to then the battery cells, and collect data sets that most of which didn't exist before. And that's how we started. And now we have a big publishing company, data company, uh, advisory company, whatever you want to call it, that, that is now basically advising this this complete what I believe is a, the key cog of the energy transition, and that's the lithium-ion battery. It was October 2015. I've told this story probably too many times on the podcast, but I like it, so I'm going to tell it again. We're sitting at a Starbucks on what we called Lithium Row, young Simon Moores. I think I saw him at the first what's now Fast Markets Lithium Supply and Markets Conference in Chile, and then the next one maybe was in Buenos Aires. So I hadn't seen you in four or five years. We meet up, and you've got one employee, the a recent podcast guest, Andy Miller. And now you've got, you can tell me how many employees I, I've lost track. But let's talk about from your humble beginnings, and now your raw materials cathode, cells, mega factories. How do you parse the importance of the different aspects of the whole battery supply chain? How do you decide how to allocate resources to it? What do you think is more important? And then I'll ask the follow-up on what do you think the most limiting factors are? Yeah, so actually the way the, the company's divided, we, we yeah, last time uh, when, when we met Joe, uh, reacquainted in Tokyo in 2015, there was two of us. We now have 53 employees. We're hiring another 25 this year. So we're going to in and around 100 people, uh, you know, uh, by December this year. And the way we have divided it up is the company is the lithium-ion battery supply chain. That is what we do. So 
we actually divide the the information collection by function. We have a pricing and data division. We have a consultancy division. We have an events division, ESG. And within those divisions, we have people on... It could be raw materials, lithium, graphite, cobalt, nickel. It could then be um, cathodes or anodes, of course, or it could be battery cells. So they're, they're the main areas that we constantly collect data on every week, every month, every quarter. Um, the way those resources are allocated is more than one analyst will be on. We have a number of people on lithium, but then they'll also link into the cathode. The people that are on graphite would also link into the anode. So it's very important for me that everyone in the business has is multidisciplined, isn't siloed into one key raw material um, to understand how this whole supply chain is interlinked. And then what happens with the business is we have the, the pricing engine machine feeds into the rest of the business and so the consultants that are then doing the big advisory projects for big OEMs, big government, big oil companies. They'll be still using the same data that we're collecting from this engine. But I think that in, in summary, the way I view, you can't just be on lithium. You have to be, if you're, if you're doing lithium, you have to be understanding cathodes. If you're doing gra- flake graphite, you have to be understanding spherical graphite to, to the anode material. Um, and, and that philosophy, we're, we're kind of growing the, this template now based on that. We're going from two employees in 2015 to somewhere in the 70s this year. The advantage as an observer that I've always seen that Benchmark has is you're nimble and you're competing with older, larger information services companies that are doing so many things that it's maybe jack of all trades, master of none. Benchmark's always been quicker to move, quicker to come out with new products. But as you go from two people to the 70s, how do you maintain the nimbleness? And when you're hiring people, what are the characteristics that you're looking for? Yeah, that is good questions. Well, you're going from two employees. Mm -hmm. Nimbleness. To 75. You've been nimble. Up till now, but the bit, we've seen it happen in other industries. The bigger you get, how do you keep the culture? How do you hire? What do you look for? And what are the characteristics of somebody you want on Team Benchmark? The nimbleness thing is to make sure that the, the chain of decision-making is really short. So I, I, from day one, I, I've been, I make sure that the decisions don't really go through me. Not even the, like the ultimate biggest decisions that are like, that the company can you know rise and fall on will of course go through me but 95 percent of, of decision making sits within the heads of divisions and that's really important that effectively benchmark isn't one company but it's 10 small companies but then they've all got to be interconnected and make sure they're not going off in different directions which kind of is my job and the job of the senior management so for me the the, the way the two things that we do to keep nimble are making sure that chain of command is really short make and then making sure decision making is quick like if I want to hire a number of major hires, one of my division heads just WhatsApps me. Uh, do you want to hire this guy? Does that sound good? Does that feel good? This is the wage. This is the amount. Yeah, fine, done. And, you know, we don't have to go through a long process of, of financial planning and things like this. Of course, we do things professionally, but but um, keeping that entrepreneurial and, and spirit and momentum is key. And the final point, how to um, who we hire, effectively, we we hire completely based on personality, not based on experience. So we we operate in a certain way of benchmark. We understand the the knowledge we have and more importantly, the the crucial part of the data we have. We can teach anybody 
what, how we view the supply chain. It's just whether they are hardworking, whether they are selfless people, whether they're here for the, the team first and the, the person second. These are like crucial parts. And, you know, if, if, if there's anybody, in, it's funny, if anyone in the business that becomes themselves first and a team second, it becomes very apparent really quickly. We've had a few examples recently. And so it's quite interesting to see how much of a true team that, that this, this business is. And everyone's young and hungry and it's, it excites, yeah, it excites not only customers, it excites um, the people that work for the company. So it gets harder, but I think if you keep those principles, we can scale quite rapidly. I want to go back to lithium, back to the original roots, I guess, before we move on to other topics. The EV market is developing rapidly. Let's put it that way. Do you view lithium as the biggest limiting factor to the growth of EVs in the next five to seven years? Or is it something else? I tend to view it as lithium, but I tend to be myopic because lithium is most of what I do. You have a broader purview. You talked about chips of limited EVs in the COVID era, but we all know now lithium is at least partially responsible for long EV waits. If you want to order a Tesla, you're probably not going to get it now until late 22 or 23, depending on the model. What are your thoughts on that? What are the limitations to getting to what like a Joe Biden wants is a 50% EV penetration by 2030? For me, it's kind of a narrative that we're, we're you know, it's kind of our opinion and narrative that we're pushing at, at the moment is that, you know, if... Electric vehicles are lithium-ion batteries. Um, well, then, electric vehicles are raw materials. So from a really kind of basic perspective in 2015, when we first met Joe in Tokyo, the raw material element of, a, of the cost of a lithium-ion battery was 30 to 40%. Now you're at a, in a world where those, that raw material cost of a lithium-ion battery is 70 to 80%. And with the prices going up, uh, for, for certainly for lithium and nickel, that's just increasing. So... For me, the limiting factor on electric vehicles is raw materials. And fundamentally, lithium, I agree, by far, is the number one thing. And the reason it's the number one thing is you, you go to, you know, everyone's talking about NCM and then LFP emerges and you go, well, that eliminates your nickel problem and, and your, and your uh, manganese problem and so on, but you still need lithium. And so the one thing that I think is really important for everybody, every one of your listeners on the podcast to understand is this is a lithium economy that we're building. It's a lithium-ion battery economy, but it's a it's it's lithium. You can't replace lithium in any of the technologies that are in the short, medium, and long term. Any of these battery technologies, whether it's uh, NCM chemistries, whether it's LFP chemistries, whether it's solid state, um, lithium is the irreplaceable element. So I would agree with that sentiment. All right. Well, let's go to another important, if not irreplaceable element, and that would be nickel. We have recently had what I like to term the LME nickel fiasco. <laughs> what are your thoughts on how that happened? What implications are for the future? It's, it's kind of a fascinating uh, anecdote to a very interesting beginning of 2022 as everybody settles into the fact that as you put it, raw materials are becoming a much more significant part of the cost of moving lithium-ion batteries into the mainstream. Yeah, nickel 
and the LME. I mean, what it did show is that the LME, as it as is at present, isn't fit for purpose for the the world that we live in at the moment. You know, if nickel breaks the LME, and and you know, we're not from the financial trading world. We're from the the physical, real world of people that mine these raw materials and buy them and use them to make batteries and then buy the batteries. So we're from a physical supply chain and this, and the LME nickel situation is another example of financial hedging effectively, you know, the system breaking. And and I think the key thing here is, I'm not saying the LME, the LME needs to re- completely reinvent itself. You know, we've seen the LME with launching a lithium contract that just ha- didn't happen, didn't even take off. Uh, nickel is, is its next problem. The enemy knows this as well, though. The enemy, they've got a new CEO coming in. The CEO, new CEO is going to have to work with new people. They're going to have to have new partners. They're going to have to think of a new system. And they're going to have to gear everything towards this 21st century supply chain of key battery raw materials. The enemy also needs to understand that they aren't the market. The enemy is coming from a world of big commodity where, where there's a belief and understanding there that, that they, are the, they are the market maker or they are a, the most important or one of the most important factors in the market they exist. That's commodities. That's 20th century old school world. The city of London does not have any bearing on the industry that we're in, the battery supply chain, the guys mining lithium in, in, in Chile and then it going into Teslas and, um, in California or in Europe. The LME has to go from analog to digital. It has to go from 20th century to 21st. Nickel is the perfect example of, of, of shock to the system for them. And um, I have no doubt they'll find the solutions. I have no doubt. But right now, it's, um, this has to be the, the scariest time for the LME since its inception. Well, the last two years and living in the COVID world has brought uh, some other problems to, to the fore in terms of supply chains. I've, I've always called the lithium-ion battery market an Asian market because it's been dominated by Asian players for the most part. We're starting to see that change and we're starting to see in the post-COVID world the desire to have regionalized supply chains. This week, the President of the United States has decided that he's gonna try to invoke Cold War powers. We we can. I'm not sure exactly how to parse that. It's been uh, published in in a couple of different formats, but we're seeing that President Biden is now seemingly making a real effort to try to say, "Hey, I want to see production of battery materials in the U.S. and I'm going to do what I am allowed to do under the powers that I have to affect that change." How important do you think this is? And, you know, you've spent a fair amount of time in Washington. I don't want to make this question too long, but you have been uh, in front of the Senate, in front of the powers that be in this country. So you have some experience with this. So where do you see the political climate for enabling a strong U.S. or slash North American supply chain? I was quite positive on the news that came out just yesterday, uh, which was that the Defence, I think it's Defence Production Act, I think that's correct, the DPA, um, Title Three is the bit to look at. Um, I don't like reading these things, because actually when the White House puts out these, these releases, I, I don't understand half the language and, and I have to really think about it. But um, what happened yesterday, from, from my takeaway at least, from a high level, um, are two things which are very... I think positive to very positive sentiment for North America and certainly U.S. Um, uh, critical mineral production and building the supply chains here in the U.S. as we are in New York City at present. Um, 
two things. One was this short-term um, element to it, which is the U.S. government are targeting easy wins in North America, like um, minerals that are coming from by-production, which uh, from infrastructure already exists. That could be lithium from a ball mine in California as a byproduct. Can we build, that's what the U.S. is saying, can we build a processing plant to then access um, smaller volumes of lithium, but quicker volumes of lithium to get into the market quickly. The same for cobalt, the same for manganese, the same for graphite and nickel. Um, so they're, they're looking at short-term wins from co-production, but in the industry we call it by-production, by-products. That's number one. Number two is this longer-term thing where we could actually see the US government putting money, not buying assets, but putting money uh, into junior mining or development stage mining uh, companies here in the US to actually pay for their bankable feasibility study, to pay for the biggest bottleneck to access um, money from New York. We're here, Joe, looking over Times Square, New York City, the, the heart of capitalism. Yeah, the heart of capitalism, the heart of... Great view as well, actually. The heart of where the money should be coming from for, for this USA, North American supply chain. And it's not been flowing. And, but the government have identified that the BFS stage, bankable feasibility, is the biggest bottleneck. So the fact they're actually willing to put money into that to help oil the wheels and de-bottleneck and open up this, this big capital to build the minds of tomorrow, I think overall is a really positive thing. Now, some people have been kind of semi-negative on the news. Well, what do you expect the government to do? They're not going to be buying mines up and building them themselves. That would be the worst thing that could happen in the US. But they are actually starting to try and identify serious problems with real money getting into real projects. So uh, overall, this DPA, uh, Defense Production Act, I thought was, for me, the biggest action I've seen for battery raw materials anywhere in the world. Um, but it's not there to... Instantly build mines overnight is there to try and coax and drag this the capital markets into the 21st century. As somebody who's following this industry very closely, when you look at a company like a Tesla and you see that they they were able to go get into production from a clean sheet of paper, they didn't have the legacy production modes and issues they had perhaps with old labor agreements, etc. The president, when he articulates what he wants to do, he talks about wanting to have a robust supply chain that makes large format batteries. When you look at the map of planned investments in the U.S., you see, I mean, obviously Tesla is ahead of the game. They've had an operating gigafactory for years now. But, but there's a lot of other programs, at least on planning and paper stages. How do you see the government's role in that? And how do you see partnerships? From my view, I see most of the OEMs that are getting involved are partnering with either an Asian player, maybe a Korean player. Obviously, Tesla's had a partnership with Panasonic for years. So how much of that do you see as the U.S. gradually developing what they call their own production but it still, to me, has an Asian flair. Is that the way you view it, or do you feel that ultimately the U.S. will try to do things in a more, say, nationalistic format? Yeah, so to date, lithium-ion battery or gigafactory production in, in U.S. or planned gigafactories, I think the U.S. is in a very strong position with its, its, its 
lithium-ion battery production going forward. Obviously not now. All you have is a gigafactory, really, at scale, which is Panasonic. But going forward, you've got partnerships with LG Chem, SK Innovation, um, Tier 1. I believe uh, the US has four of the Tier 7 uh, battery makers that, that we identify as Tier... Sorry, four of, the t- uh, four of seven of the Tier 1 battery makers. So at Benchmark, every uh, quarter we update our... Um, our tiering system, uh, there's seven tier one producers. The US has, has got uh, at least four of them active here. And for me, it's Asian, it's Japanese and Korean makers. It'll be interesting to see if uh, CATL or any of the Chinese uh, battery makers uh, start building uh, plants here. That could be a very interesting geopolitical olive branch because as we know, lithium-ion batteries are now geopolitical. They're at the top of the White House. Um, China's been it's been government mandated from China for many years now so that's one interesting thing to watch um, but what OEMs need to understand and, and I'm saying, not saying they don't understand it they have great people working for them they just haven't made a decision they're going to have to start investing in mines the OEMs will have to become mining companies and I don't mean that's them co- uh, owning the majority of mines I mean that's them they're going to have to put money in themselves when they realise these battery plants are up and running and they haven't got enough lithium. They haven't got enough nickel. Um, same for graphite and everything else. And the key thing for me is lithium and nickel are still the ones that terrify the OEMs. I foresee a situation soon, I think, within 18 months, that OEMs start part-owning mines in the US. The government, um, this DPA Act I mentioned earlier, could be the catalyst for that. We shall see. But vertical integration will be the name of the game for the next 10, 15 years here in the US, and, and we're going to have to see OEMs become miners in one way or another. So in your mind, Henry Ford went and bought rubber plantations in different parts of the world. Is a lithium production facility in the United States the new moral equivalent of the rubber plantation for Ford? Well, the principle's the same, right? I mean, the difference, I guess, is that you know, rubber plantations, you can you can grow them pretty quickly. You know, you can't... It doesn't take seven years to build a rubber plantation and then grow rubber and turn it to tyres, right? So I think the barriers for entry are quite much lower in the rubber plantation industry, but the principle's the same. Henry Ford ran out of tyres and he had to go and... He worked out how it was made and the industry couldn't respond at the time. So um, why not? You're going to have to go and do it yourself. And I think this vertical integration thing is key because to build this supply chain and industry from scratch... Uh, you need to the OEMs need to build it themselves it's not they're the, they're the ones that want to go the quickest in the supply chain they're the ultimate the most powerful entities in this supply chain they're going to have to become um, mining companies and, and if you look at the investment that's gone into gigafactories it's probably 10x what it's going 10x quicker than what's going into mining so for example 150 billion dollars went into building gigafactories last year at various stages of planning 500 billion dollars has gone in all in at 283 gigafactories that we're tracking mining we haven't added that up it's going to be a fraction but it'll be an order of magnitude less than what's happening on the battery plants and that's a big problem that's this great raw raw material disconnect that the industry has to uh, has to uh, bridge I've certainly said it. I think Benchmark has said it. It takes a couple of years to build a gigafactory. It takes less time to build a cathode plant. It takes up to 10 years to do a greenfield lithium operation. This seems like really simple elementary school math. However, we've seen the OEMs assume lithium production. I don't think they really started to get 
concern in a significant way until 2021. You may have a have a different year for that. But I, I do think they are concerned now. But we're sitting here on April Fool's Day of 2022, but we haven't seen a big announcement. Yeah, GM has said, where are they going to put some money into a salt and sea development? But when they say millions, it's going to be on the order of magnitude of a couple of billion to get the kind of lithium values that they would need, assuming there was a technology that could do the, the salt and sea brine. And that's that's still probably several years in the make. Why do you think we got to the place that we're at right now? Do you believe that the OEM said this is the battery guy's problem and didn't realize until recently it's actually their problem? And you can't uh, push that lithium problem downstream because ultimately, if there's no lithium, it affects everybody in the supply chain. Yeah, so the way I view the OEMs, rewind back to 2017 when the OEMs are really starting to look at this in, in, a, in a, a reasonable way, let's say. The first challenge was, well, we're just going to buy the batteries and long-term contracts. But very quickly then, within about 18 months, they realized, maybe about two years, they realized that isn't going to happen. So we're going to have to start making the batteries ourselves. Joint ventures start to pop up everywhere. And then um, I think now the penny is dropping uh, to make lithium-ion batteries. Well, if 80% of the lithium-ion batteries are raw materials from a cost basis... um, you're going to then need to get the raw materials. Then they start doing JVs on, on refining plants, which you're seeing Tesla are doing it in Austin. VW have just announced uh, last week that they're doing lithium and cobalt refining in China. Um, so the OEMs have, uh, since 2017 to 2022, crept upstream. Not all of them, but actually if you see the, the, the direction of travel is, is from, from the car to the battery to the cathode, battery and cathode integrated in some way, not enough yet. So then the refining, the last step that they haven't touched is the mining. And they're going to very quickly understand they have to um, have to step into that because there just isn't going to be enough raw material. And I think from a culture perspective, I think they could afford to... Well, they, they previously could have afforded to wait because they're the most powerful entities in the supply chain. You know, don't take the risk early and, and pay more down the line later. The problem now is... There just isn't going to be enough lithium at the back end of this decade. We've reached this impossible stage where if all the mine, lithium mines come on stream, there isn't enough for demand. And we all know not all these lithium mines are going to make it. You know, Historically, it's 5%. It, it, say we get to 50% and we get that successful, you've still got a major um, supply crunch. And, and if they act now and start owning these assets themselves in one way or another, that's the only way they can guarantee as much as possible that we don't... Um, fall off a cliff come 2027. We would like to thank our sponsor, Zolandes, who prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Recently, a junior lithium explorer in Argentina was able to save up to 20% in their exploration costs through the use of Zolandes Technology Services. To learn more, visit Zolandes.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D. Easy.com. Benchmark has recently had its first in-person event in, what, two and a half years? Yeah, yeah. In Berlin. 
couple of things. One, what is the emotional impact on, you know, people have been pretty much on Zoom or on Teams or on phone calls for 24 to 30, 30 months. How did that event go? How did it feel to be with people again? I think I was actually with you in London when we did the Four Bottle of Wine podcast in September with uh, some other friends, Mr. Shay Shay Nee and Mr. Mintak and Bob Cross from Standard. But that was the first time you had been with people that you normally encounter from overseas in a long time. But now that you've been in Berlin, your team's been in Berlin, tell me about how that was. And more importantly, tell me about the takeaways from talking about the mega factories in Europe. Yeah, so we did our Battery Mega Factories Europe 2022 event, which now is rolling out to a series called Battery Gigafactories Europe. Uh, sorry, Battery Gigafactories USA. We'll do one in Asia Pacific. We'll do one in the UK. But these events, um, it was great to be back in person. And it was kind of a, a feeling among people. The one thing that did stand out, actually, for this the delegation was that there was no COVID fear there. Of course, people take their own precautions and there's vaccinations and, and masks and everything that goes with it. But actually, people weren't fearful anymore. And that, I think that was really important to to get out and and, and mix again. And the other thing that was very apparent and very obvious, which I had almost forgotten in two and a half years, I think a lot of people had, is that, one, you have the presentations, but, of course, it's it's talking to people, having a beer after the event, having the evenings out. That's when things happen. That's when things get done. That's when, actually, creativity starts flowing and ideas to uh, you know to to further this industry and this supply chain start really happening you don't get those moments of creativity and innovation on zoom calls you don't get them um sitting in front of your laptop you get them from actually just having fun catching up with really good people and and for me that was the main standout and the bit i'd forgotten people can focus very much on factual information and data and of course that's our business but for me, it's the creativity part that really furthers um, this industry. Another question. Both the EU and North America are well behind Asia in building out a, a battery supply chain. That's clear. There seems to be an intramural rivalry between the two sides of the, the pond. I think Europe's done a much better job of hyping their supply chain. But I think the reality is a fair amount different. We don't, there is no major lithium chemical production in Europe. There, there's some conversion, there's a resource operating, has operated for years. But when you look at the 2025 and 2030 goals of the EU, and you see the fact that it's going to be at least a few years before there's local production, how do you view it? How do you view North America, I won't say versus Europe, but as compared to Europe in terms of the next few years? I have a lot of people write to me that say, you know, we're so far behind Europe, and I don't view it that way. Who's the leader in the EVs in the world? And as far as I'm concerned, it's Tesla. I think it's great what some of the big OEMs in Germany are trying to do. 
But when I look at, if I go out and try to buy one of those models in the United States, I can't get one. The European approach, and this is the European Union approach primarily that's, that's driven this. I'm not saying one's right or wrong, it's just two, the way I view two different ways of doing it has been a government-led approach. It's been a top-down, uh, we are going to make, put lithium-ion batteries at the centre of an industrial policy. One can say it's a sim similar approach to what China have done, right? Um, government uh, top-down, we're going to um, explain to the market how important lithium-ion batteries are, how important electric vehicles are, subsidise it to a little bit. Um, so it's been in some interesting things that have been coming out in terms of the supply chain. But, but for me, what it does is it sets a narrative that, that Europe is building lithium-ion batteries at scale and are building um, or wanting to build the supply chain to go with it. Uh, the reality is that, that Europe has two get this right, two active gigafactories. You've got LG and you've got Samsung SDI. Um, LG in Poland, Samsung in, in Hungary. And then that's about it. But Europe has, last two years, gone through the roof in terms of um, planned gigafactories. So I believe Europe in total has uh, 29 gigafactories in the pipeline. And it's, it's also have a, has a good story of wanting to develop mines there and, and build refining plants. But as you said, that doesn't exist yet. So I think the narrative in the EU is, is very good. And I think the direction is very good for the industry and especially for someone like VW, which you could argue is a government, a part government entity as well. You go to the US, it's been very much a market-led thing. Until recently, in the, the, you know, with the, what the White House is coming out with, it's been very much Tesla. Tesla wanting to build electric cars, we need to build a gigafactory, and then everything comes from that. Um, it's been very much relied upon the people that need the raw materials and need the batteries to lead the way. The US, in terms of gigafactories, I believe is in around the 20 mark now, which is an incredible pace of change in the last 12 months. Um, I think the difference with the US is I think you've got, as I mentioned, more higher quality battery, real battery makers, tier one lithium-ion battery producers wanting to set up in the US. The risk with Europe is there are a lot of startup battery companies that have never made a battery before. I'm not saying they won't make it for sure. I, I think the industry needs that. They need these, these new guys to push the incumbents. But I would say they're the two main ways that I, I view the, 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 the US versus Europe. The final thing about the US is it just needs the 10x. If you look at the battery capacity uh, to 2031, we have 577 gigawatt hours in the pipeline. Europe's at 15% of that pie. Uh, the US is at 12. So there isn't that much difference in terms of capacity. The rest is China. So the US really needs to get its act together because you're not going to need 20 plants. You're probably going to need something like 50 to actually make this work. If we go back to the 80s, Japan Inc. is what everybody was talking about. Japan tended to act as a country, the government-supported industry. Then we saw a similar thing played out a little differently in Korea, but Korea obviously had a very few strong companies and they're still leaders in the lithium ion space today. China played out much the same way. They started a little later, but it's national policy. As you say, EU's trying to do the same thing, but in the case of Japan, it's a homogeneous nation, basically. China has the bully pulpit of basically one guy in charge. In the EU, you've got how many voices? 
<laughs> yeah. Over, let's just say, okay, it's over 25. Yeah. And they don't seem to agree, and there isn't a bully, bully pulpit. America's always been different. We've always tried to do things, free market, let the market lead. And now, if the government has any real impact, it will be more as a, an enabler, not a driver of the companies like Tesla or of Ford going through change, GM going through change. Is a guy who's looking at the globe, it, looking at how this all plays out, how do you see the different cultures and the, diff, the way countries operate impacting that? Do you think that the U.S., once it gets its market-driven engine going, is capable of catching up? Or do you think a place like the EU or they're, they're trying to dictate it, but it's like putting an elephant together by committee, my... My words, not Simon's. Uh, you know, just when you look at the next five to seven years, how do you see this playing out? And do you do you see it being 15% EU, 12% U.S.? Or do you think once the U.S. gets going, maybe they leapfrog it just because it's guys like Elon Musk rather than a bunch of bureaucrats getting it done? I feel like that was a leading question, Joe. Yeah. Uh, the the- it certainly was. <laughs> uh, no, I, I agree. It's I've, I mean, it's my kind of... Uh, thinking and principle, and I, I always try and challenge my traditional thinking, but uh, governments don't really get things done, right? Governments would create the the environment, oil the wheels, uh, maybe spark action and, and help get things done, but it's real companies that um, that need either to buy products or create products to exist that actually get things done. Um, and I think with the battery industry uh, in the US or the lithium-ion economy in the US... It's, it's been taking a lo- long time, um, I think, for everybody to actually believe that electric vehicles were a thing, uh, to actually then, whilst understanding that, then waiting to invest the money. I think the fact that General Motors, I think probably with a push from the White House, uh, are getting stuck in in a big way is big. The partnerships with the LG Chem kind of sets the tone, I think. And, and as a result, you know, it's taken... 10 years, let's call it, let's say, five years for the US to get up and running. But I do think now, going into next, from now going into next year, I think you're, you're going to see, can I use the word explosion? I think you're going to see an, an explosion of, of, of supersized battery plants, not at the speed of, of what's happening in China, but certainly, as I said, you've, say you've got 20 plants at the moment in the US, give or take. I think that's very quickly going to 50. Um, the question is whether the they can build out the, the whether the supply chain investment and narrative gets carried forward with the battery cell, or whether this disconnect continues. I think the European Union, um, while it's been good, the, the 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 narrative and the sentiment and the money they've put in there has helped the industry t- to an extent. They've still got the big supply chain problem in the EU. You can't f- where are these raw materials going to come from, and then you've got twenty seven I think countries uh, that have to make their own decisions independently of the European Union. And that's far more difficult. So it will be interesting to see whether the US overtakes the EU in that portion of the pie in the next two years. It's my feeling that it probably will. But it's not just about capacity. It's about real supply. And it all comes back to mining in the first place. So that's, that's always my caveat with these things. All right. We're starting to wind this down. I got a couple more questions. I've been talking a lot lately about why I think the lithium shortage is actually understated, not overstated. 
And one of the reasons is all those gigafactories that you're tracking, when they start operating, they can have anywhere from 30 to 50% scrap for a period of months. And even when they get to steady state, there's still a fairly significant amount of scrap. And I think J.B. Straubel had verified that with some of his comments in the past week, J.B. Straubel being the ex-Tesla, now Redwood Materials uh, CEO. So I say that if a lithium molecule travels to a gigafactory and at some point in the production, whether it's when it's put on the substrate or even after it's a full cell, it has to go back to one of the recyclers whose job is really going to be more about reprocessing scrap early on rather than end-of-life batteries. I think that the shortage we have is significantly understated. But you're the expert. I'm just the talking head here. So what do you agree with that? And do you see that as a problem? And if so, how significant a problem? Because people aren't talking about that. So it's kind of like a shortage of lithium or lithium-ion well, batteries. I mean, okay, so you have a gigafactory that starts up. So they source the lithium. Yeah. But the lithium, somewhere in between being turned into cathode and going into a cell becomes scrap. So that lithium molecule doesn't go into a battery. That lithium molecule goes to a redwood materials or a neometals or a lye cycle and has to get reprocessed. And there's some inefficiency in that process. So it, you lose some lithium, you lose it at the battery production level, and then you lose some of it at the recycle level. So when people are doing spreadsheets and they say, well, this much lithium is going to the battery plant, Early on, that might only be 60% of that lithium becomes a lithium-ion battery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I say yeah. that the shortage is understated, but nobody's like to talk about that. And when I do talk about it, people usually, their eyes glaze over and they say, I don't really understand the problem. Sharp guy like you, sitting here 54 stories above the streets of Manhattan, what do you think? I would agree. Uh, I think, you know, if you've got your lithium intensity numbers that people like to use per gigawatt hour, you could probably increase that by 25% to account for this loss, right? You're, Joe, you probably think 40%, right, <laughs> from, your, from your numbers. But... Well, no, I, I think if you take a year, I mean, they get better quickly, but there is still some steady state. But you heard it here first, people. I've, I've just broken news. It's Lithium intensity is actually much higher as you put new gigafactories on than what whiteboard math would tell you let's go to the closing questions from my perspective benchmark is at the beginning of a long run where you're going to need to add people as we talked about earlier and that the current ev penetration and the current level of energy storage we have this transition is just getting started where do you see benchmark in five years i'm pretty sure you asked me this question the last time i was on the podcast that might have been that, that might have been 18 years ago. 2018 yeah. something like that my word my word i wonder what i said back then i'm probably gonna hopefully i'll say something consistent as consistent with what i'm gonna say now but I we'll see dig that up and i will append it to this yeah. episode yeah compare i mean for me it's always more of the same so you know we have we in benchmark in many ways, looking back at set, the way we set the business up, we 
We launch. We constantly launch new products through our new for our constant um, different divisions. So we're always launching new products, um, and we are by definition of of how we set the business up with the world tour that we started with. We're a global company, so actually as a result, we probably did things the hard way first. We went global. We went lots of products <laughs> with, with not many people. Um, so more of the same means we've got such a, a, a wide and, and solid base to to scale. With just what we do at the moment, that's challenge number one. So that's really 10, uh, 10x revenue just from the industry that we're in today. Now, the reality is that we're going to eventually have to get into new relevant supply chains uh, with the benchmark philosophy that we've built for lithium-ion batteries. We're, look, we're trying to map out sensibly what that looks like um, and and then see where it takes us, really. I think the third thing we need to do is introduce technology into into our into our world more you know uh, we're building this massive new terminal called benchmark pro it's been in, under construction for two years i've kept it under wraps uh, because they're very difficult things to build and it's and we've got a lot of tech people on it um, that for the first time will open up all of our data that we collect in one place to be able to mani- manipulate it and see the whole supply chain so introducing technology in a big way is a key part for us and then working with external partners, financial institutions, exchanges, um, whoever wants to work with us in a sensible way to further the industry and not just, not just profit and, and, and get on the bandwagon, but actually to be useful to the industry, then we're all ears. But I would say more of the same with a twist of get more into the financial markets, a twist of get more into technology would be the, uh, would be the key. But we need people. We need good people. So if people want to join Benchmark, just send me an email. Last question before rapid fire we have had a great run the last five years been a lot of progress but you can see that the efforts to date are still far behind where where we need to be what in this industry has surprised you the most take the whole broad area that you cover what's been the biggest surprise to you in the last five years how geopolitical the lithium-ion battery has become the white house doing workshops on critical minerals with the President of the United States, chairing the, the workshop. That's ridiculous. That's the kind of stuff that Benchmark has been doing since day one and, and you know, 20 people would turn up in 2015 to listen to it. And the, but the President of the United States doing a bloody workshop on critical minerals, that's nuts, right? The EU talking about lithium-ion batteries as a key technology from the top as well. Uh, the fact that um, it's geopolitical, it, you know, if... if if a country, a major economy, wants to exist in the 21st century, they need to build lithium-ion batteries as a platform technology. They're now clocking onto that because of all the work that uh, the likes of, of Benchmarks and the likes of you've done, Joe, is that they're clocking onto how, Im- to you, how important this is from every angle. And I think that, for me, is the, is the standout uh, thing. If, I have, if I'm allowed to have two answers, I would argue the last 18 months, the pace of change. It's just, you know, we've gone from, if it took us seven years to go from one to 100, it's taken us 12 months to go from 100 to 1,000. And that's a big risk. You know, we're at risk of going too quickly here and disappointing a lot of people. So, so I think the industry needs a dose of reality. And finally, what question should I have asked you that I didn't? I think probably whether Tupac Shakur or Biggie Smalls was uh, is the one, but that might be coming up in the rapid fire, I think. So, uh, no, your questions are, are bang on, I think. So uh, I'm happy to uh, 
to be able to... Actually, I think this is the first time I've ever done a, a one-on-one podcast with you. It could be the first time. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it, Jay. All right. We'll move on to rapid fire. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, rapid fire. We're in the Soho house, and we are, if you listen to the episode live from London, we're with Shay Nini's little brother, who is actually the big stick. I'm not going to put any more clarification on that. Soho House is a little loud. I'm not sure how this is going to come out. But we're going to start out with the most obvious question for Simon Moores. Daniel Craig or Sean Connery? Daniel Craig and Tolu, Shay's brother, is going to answer every question as well. For me, Daniel Craig, Tolu. Daniel. Daniel. Tupac or Biggie? Tupac Shakur, Tolu. Biggie. If you could bitch slap any person or entity in the space who would it be and you can answer this any way you choose for me I would bitch slap myself for not doing even better than we've done we should have done more, we could be bigger and I was a little bit not too aggressive in the last two years so I would bitch slap Simon Moores sorry I wouldn't bitch slap anyone too nice. I mean it's all you need is love okay Ronaldo, Messi, or late ad Rooney? Viva Ronaldo. Messi for me. Messi all the way. When you got out of college, where did you envision yourself 15 years later? At Soho House with Joe Larry and Tolu. Definitely not in New York. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty loud here. We're, we're, we're going to do one more. Where do you see yourself in three years? At Soho House with Joe Lowry and Tolly. The future Mr. Lithium. <laughs> and that, ladies and gentlemen, is a very loud, rapid fire. Oh, I, I got a couple more. Your favorite book. That's really difficult. I don't read books. Okay, wait a second. I'm going to give this over to our other guest while Simon ponders. It can be a comic if you if you like. The Bible. My favorite book is the one I haven't written yet. Oh, well played, Simon Morris. And with that, thank you for listening. The Rapid Fire was recorded approximately eight hours after the main body of the podcast. In that time, we moved from north of Times Square in Midtown to a place to play billiards and then to a Yakiniku restaurant in K-Town and then finally to the Soho House. In that interim, you can imagine that an adult beverage or two is consumed, which may have uh, dictated the quality of some of the rapid-fire answers. In any case, it's always a pleasure to catch up with Simon, and I'm really happy that Tolu has anointed himself as the next Mr. Lithium. He's an impressive young man. I'm sure his big brother Shay is proud of him. 
and I look forward to see how his future unfolds because I would not be surprised if he winds up in the lithium-ion battery space. And one final thought. Spending time in New York, there's a lot of pluses, but there's also the fact that as you walk the streets of New York, you see a lot of homelessness, you see a lot of social issues manifested on their streets. If you listen to this podcast, chances are you are in a financial position to help those in need around you. And I would urge you, uh, COVID may be over, but human need is not. It's easy to walk past homeless people on the street and somehow emotionally insulate yourself from their need. One thing I've learned from my two daughters that live in New York is how I interact with the need I see on the street. And that doesn't happen much where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, because I live out of the downtown area, but it does happen every time I'm in New York. I have learned to look people in the eye, acknowledge them, and in the case uh, yesterday, we are going into a bodega to get some breakfast biscuits, and we see a gentleman outside, and my son-in-law says, you know, what can we get you? I'm really not trying to preach here. I am just trying to give you a life lesson that I learned from my children, and that is to give people that you see that are less fortunate than you as much dignity as you can. Look them in the eye, and if you're in a position to, buy them a meal. It it helps them in, in a small way, but it also helps you. And that is how I want to close this episode. Generosity benefits the giver as much as the receiver. Thanks for listening.